0: Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. Staying hungry, that is what former pro Supercross racer Weston Peak has based his career on. This mentality is what led him to the notorious race that almost cost him his life. But if he can come back from a crushed face, it begs the question: what the hell is our excuse for literally anything? Here it is, episode 608.
1: Dude, we got the poor man's Jamie here. So that's what yeah, we refer to him as. Guy. <laughs> Janky instead of Jamie. <laughs> ah, I like it. Good job, Janky. Great. That's, that's funny. Great that's, <laughs> uh, you know what? Write that down. Tex gets one witty comment a year, and that was his. We, so we got it on to, tape. and we, we don't have to worry until 2023.
2: All right, Weston, I'm out. See you, man. Have fun. Yeah.
1: Peace. Bye. Peace. <laughs> dude, so so give us a backstory. I mean, obviously we're talking to you in Boise, Idaho, but uh like give us the backstory, you know, where are you're from, how'd you get into Moto and uh more importantly, uh, after we watched some of the videos online. Holy shit.
0: Yeah, so I a little bit of backstory. I grew up in uh California, right around the riverside area It's kind of bounced through my whole life. Uh
1: so you grew up in the IE riding I- a motorcycle, a dirt bike. That never happens.
0: Never happens. I still got a <laughs> nine phone number, yeah. <laughs>
1: Dude, I still got my nine four nine. I'm from uh, I'm from Orange County.
0: Orange County, everybody, right?
1: Yeah, uh, Newport Beach.
0: Newport Beach, yeah. But uh, yeah, so just kind of obviously, you know, what do you figure? Everybody grows up in California. The races, for the most part, uh, just kind of got into it from my dad used to race back in the day, um, up until amateur days, and uh, kind of had a, a, a what was a uh Team Green ride for a while, and then kind of uh, just didn't work out for him. But he always rode still, and he kind of got me, and my brother, into it. Um, from young age, I think I was riding at two or three years old. Um, even in the back of the van, just starting to PW50 holding the wide open was I racing, you know, just being a little crazy kid. Uh, so it kind of just started that way and, um, just took off from there, just did a bunch of local stuff, raced quite a bit. Um, then took a break for a while. Um, did the whole party scene as a kid, went to the, went to the river, went to Glamis, had fun. And then, uh, Went to regular school up till ninth grade. Got expelled for uh, fighting and doing dumb shit. And then uh, my dad was like, "Oh, you wanna, you wanna either be a painting contractor like me, or you wanna go racing." And I was like, "Well, I ain't painting, so I guess I'll go racing." So kind of a kind of a weird, you know, way of coming up just from my background. Uh, so he gave me a lot of uh, awesome opportunities to be able to put myself in uh, the position I am now.
2: Yeah, doing a little research, and then I know very little, but I didn't know how big of a deal it was that you went from a privateer racer and then earned your way to that factory spot. So let's spend some time in that journey, man, and the dedication that it takes to essentially turn pro.
0: Yeah, that journey is hell, man. <laughs> I tell uh, you, I if I if I were to put myself back in that, in that era, um, probably right around 2008, 2009, where I started racing professionally, um, I never would have thought I'd made it this far, just because of the pure headache and and money level you need to be at to be able to race professionally, and then just like the pure talent and there's so much more to it in this sport. It's it's a uh, it's a doggy dog sport and it's cutthroat. So it's like if you're if you're nobody and you're not and you're not putting you're putting a name out there, but not putting a name out there, like the chances of opportunity are so slim. And then with my situation, I, I never raced 250 class. So that screwed me a lot more than like most kids because I went straight to 450s, which is not a very um, likely thing to do just because you wanna, you wanna make your name in the 250 class, like, cause it's not the premier class and I jumped straight to the premier class. So I kind of, I did it ass backwards. Um, I skipped that cause obviously I was a bigger kid back then. I was, I was 220 pounds racing against dudes that were 130 to 150 pounds. So me racing a 250 was just not not an option just because it's I'm not going to get a good start. I'm not going to be able to compete with these guys that weigh pennies, you know. So um just kind of going through that era, um I was like me and my dad just thought it'd be a good decision to jump on a 450 and race at that point. And uh it was a struggle. I mean it was um it was from oh nine, 2010, 11, 12, um up until 13, 14ish uh it was grinding, no money, um, Borrowed money from people. My dad ran out of money, um, went bankrupt, sold a house. Luckily, had another house, moved back into um, just just crazy stuff. You know, flying to the races, uh, doing overnight flights, building my own dirt bikes, you know, half-assed mechanics showing up drunk, this, 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 and that. You know, it's just, just full on. If you looked at my back, if I wrote a book or a documentary, people would be like, how did this guy do it? You know, but for me, it was—I uh, was just always uh, determined, you know—and I had a good, a good track mind of like what I wanted in life, and it wasn't to <clears throat> have a normal job. I wanted to be somebody. I wanted to prove that I could overcome what most people can't by true hard work and just true grit and busting your ass, and and that's kind of where I ended up with in that uh, whole perspective from being a privateer onto factory ride. And it was about, um, 2013, 14 was when I kind of just started really putting in the work, hired a trainer cause I had a little bit of money to do that. And, um, at that point, you know, we kind of saw some, a lot of progression. So then it was kind of from there, just, you know, really putting my foot down working on the things that I needed to work on, uh, getting a little bit of sponsor money here and there so I could build my program and get better. And then it was around 14. I started my own t- team, um, did full supercross. Then I signed my first factory contract with, uh, RCH. So very, uh, Like how baby. does the circuit
1: work? Um, I mean, for, for those of you that aren't like super into moto, I mean, like how does the circuit work? I mean, you guys obviously travel, there's different races, uh, like, you know, I mean, are there, is it kind of like, uh, uh, you know, sport car racing where like, you know, sometimes there's big tracks, oval tracks. I mean, Or is it all just like the big flight stuff where you see the dudes going fucking 40 feet in the air? Hey, Power Athlete Nation. I need to take a few moments to thank our sponsor, Power Athlete Training Systems, for providing the best training programs on the universe, in the universe, in the metaverse. I mean, really, if this is the matrix, and I'm pretty sure we're stuck in the matrix, Neo and Morpheus are uploading Power Athlete Training Systems. I'm pretty sure they're doing field strong. What do you think, McCorkin?
2: Oh, I agree. They are on a specific training program for what they need. And to find out what you need, listeners head to powerathletehq.com forward slash training and take our little survey to find the perfect training program for you. So we have developed training programs specific for an archetype.
1: You want to get jacked. We got Jack Street. If you're looking to foster and develop athleticism, we got field strong. If you're looking to kick the door off of hinges and smash things and cut up and just be a fucking badass. We got hammer. If you're first, Experience in terms of lifting weights and getting used to a barbell using a basic linear progression with Bedrock—that's the right one for you. And if you have a few miles underneath your belt, maybe a few kids, Fortune 500 CEO, or maybe life's getting a little in the way, I want you to check out Grindstone. And if your job and your desire is to fucking wad your face off, I want you to go check out Johnny Wad. And if you want to stack on a little Johnny bot on that, and hit a little bodybuilding accessory—we got that too. So what we've done is we've created this amazing catalog of services, these training programs designed for archetypes, and every one of them fits a specific user. And you know what? If you want to find that user, go on. I want you to take the survey, and then I want you to click on and take our seven-day free trial and see which one
2: is right for you. Best-in-class training. And for less than a dollar a day, you Mm. get it delivered straight to the mobile app, Train Heroic. Mm Mm-hmm. And if you want to sign up for our newsletter,
1: you can go to powerathletehq.com forward slash or backslash forward slash Forward slash newsletter. I want you to go to that, sign up for the newsletter. Where you can get more information, not only on training programs, get uh, discounts and shop on the merch, and really just know what's going on within Power Athlete with the Academy and some of our other, other initiatives.
2: And the latest episodes of Power Athlete Radio, which is really the most important thing. Power Athlete Radio.
1: The premier podcast in strength and conditioning and your resource for the best information on training, nutrition, cars, maybe some movies, banter. And banter. I mean, we've been on other fitness podcasts, and when it comes to banter, we can fucking out banter anybody. Yes.
2: And if you're a big fan of Power Athlete Radio, don't forget to smash that subscribe button. Hit us with a five star review that we will read. If you leave
1: air. us an amazing five star review, We will read it on air. And believe me, I love reading the reviews, uh, especially the five-star
2: ones. Because it lets us know we're doing a good job. And we got some very creative listeners out there. We do. I mean, uh, that's why there are people. Yes. Throw your hat into the ring. Again, head to powerathletehq.com forward slash training. For all your training needs, take a little survey. Find out what you're training for. Seven-day free trial on that program. And training for less than $1. Thanks for Power Arthur Radio for sponsoring this podcast.
0: <laughs> See ya. Bye. Bye. Yeah. Um, so it's we have we have pretty much two circuits. Uh from January till about May, we're running Supercross. So we're indoors, so it's just big ass jumps. You know, a lot of people just call it death cross. Just because you know, you you have a uh 15, 20 foot wide track on each lane, and you have six to eight lanes each track, and you have 22 guys on the track. So imagine. Imagine just the small amount of error that you have to make or not make, or just getting a good start, getting out front to avoid those, those uh collisions and stuff. But so that's our that's our supercross series. Like that's kind of more the bread and butter. That's where you make your money at. Um, and that's kind of where more people are going towards because it's better TV time, uh, you could see more, blah, blah, blah. It's I prefer Supercross because it's a uh it's it's it takes more talent to do. It, it's more of a of a niche, I'd say more of a niche thing where like most people could just ride a dirt bike and go wide open on an outdoor track, where Supercross is, it's technique, it's it's 99% technique and and just effort, training and blah, blah, blah. And then, um, so from May to August, September, we switch over to outdoors. So it's a pro motocross outdoor series. And that's like the complete opposite. We're going, you know, a two minute and 50 minute lap time versus supercross is 40 to 50 seconds you have a four mile track three mile track and then you're going wide up in your fourth fifth gear the whole entire time and you're just pretty much just wide open the whole time it's more of a like a, a high-end endurance race that's 30 minutes plus two laps you do two of those so that's like um it, it's just a different kind of ball game different kind of race and
2: so is it the same competitors each way or is there one that you have a rival in, in each going back to the day you were racing?
0: Um, I'd say as far as like competition, like the top five, top 10 factory guys are all going to be the, the same consistency from supercross to motocross. Some guys might like outdoors more, which is like the the later on in the series, just because that's what everybody grows up doing is riding outdoors. You don't grow up riding supercross. So there is a couple handful of guys out there that are like, they'll turn it up another two notches outdoors versus supercross because that's just what they prefer to do. And that's where they feel more comfortable. So then they turn it up and you're like, God damn, like, all right. But then you also have those guys that are privateers. Um, these every year that they can't even make a main event supercross because they don't have the talent. And then you go outdoors and they're faster than you in practice and they're, they're beating you in motos, And you're like, how the fuck is this happening? Like, Mm -hmm. You know, but it's just a different mentality and different kind of racing. But for the most part, we're all there's only, I'd say, a handful of guys that we actually raced with from the start. Like, you know, when we first started riding, first started racing for stuff.
2: Yeah, I want to take a step back to where you mentioned you you hired a trainer and decided, like, what would help make that decision? Was it convincing? Was it someone else saying, hey, I'm I'm working with somebody? this changed my game or did you feel like you were getting too heavy? Like what was the direction to now invest in some training outside of sports skill?
0: Yeah. So it was kind of like, I always knew that everybody that was on that top level that was winning and, and had factory rides, they all had trainers because it's not just having a trainer for your gym program or, or your riding program. It's just, it's more of having a structure program, you know, you're, so you, you know, so you're pretty much relying on him to write your programs where you don't show up to the track and half-ass it, you have to follow his guidelines. You have to follow what he's doing. So it's more of a, it's more of a muscle memory thing, and it's more of just a guidance program. But um, but as well too is like me as needing a trainer was uh I mean I was let's take it back to middle school, high school. I was I was a fat kid. I weighed two hundred ninety pounds and I played football. So
1: how uh, how tall are you, just for reference?
0: Uh, 5'10", 5'11". five ten, five eleven. Well, I was five eleven, and then you know jumping Supercross triples. I probably shrunk about an inch and a half. So five
1: eleven, two ninety.
0: Yeah. Thick. Yeah. Oh, dude. Yeah, I can send. I'll send you some pictures. <laughs> uh, yeah. So my whole life, I was just like I said, a fat kid. Um, up until that oh eight oh nine era, you know, just started training and knowing that if I wanted to be competitive, I had to be light like everybody else. So, um, like I said, around that time, two thousand thirteen, I kind of knew. uh, I mean, I always had trainers, but it was just like half-ass on and off trainers, like nothing serious because I didn't know if I was good enough to be able to proceed my career in motocross. So at that point, I hired uh, Buddy Antonez, which he's an old-school champion, arena cross, um, once of supercross, motocross races. But, you know, he was kind of a good bet for me. He was a local guy with me, and uh, he actually trained Eli Tomac, which is the one that's, you know, won championships currently in the points late supercross. So he was more of the kind of guy that I just, I knew that I'd mesh with and he kind of pushed me and he knew what was, he knew what I needed from my, my point of skill level. And uh, from that point, it was within a year, two years, I went from getting top 15s to podium racings in 2015.
1: Is it, uh, I mean, like, uh, given like a little bit of the nuts and bolts in the training, I mean, is it just more kind of endurance work banging weights? Was it just to be stronger, fitter, uh, like what did the actual, the training look like off the bike?
0: So for me, it was different. You know, a lot of guys, they're just doing, you know, weight training and cardio for me, I'm the, I'm the opposite. I was doing like, once I knew where I needed to be and hired a trainer, I was doing 15, 20 hours a week plus on the, on the road bike outside, just busting my ass, dropping weight. So for me, it was just, I just needed cardio and <clears throat> you know, high, high endurance workouts and stuff. So other than that, I mean I never touched a single weight. It was all just bodyweight workouts, um stretching, you know, just stuff like that. But I never really, I was just naturally big. So my workout was literally just bicycle, bicycle and eating well. Obviously to take it to the riding was um we were doing 15, 20 hours a week on the bicycle. And then our dirt bike training program was doing I'd be doing a hundred laps a day, 80 to a hundred laps a day, three or four times a week on our off season just to, to, cause that was for me as like my endurance was on a bicycle and then like my weight training and other training was on the actual dirt bike. Cause that's what I needed the most was, was the knowledge of how to ride a motorcycle properly.
1: Well, I mean it's also like the gravity piece of being able to like absorb force into, you know, I mean shit for all the cornering and all that. I mean uh where did you train? I mean, like uh, I mean are are there tracks? I mean, shit, I, mean, I bet you everybody in their backyard in the AE's got a track. So I'm just wondering where y'all go for
0: this. Yeah, so for all of our training was was done in California. So we would train in uh Paula, California, um San bernardino California, which was Glenn Helen, um, and then for Supercross we had we had our own private tracks. So we'd have private tracks and uh, public tracks, so it kind of just be, it all be based in in that whole California IE area of tracks. I mean, you could drive down the freeway and you could see, you know, a couple of supercross tracks just off the freeway alone. But uh, like I said, you know, we train there, or if you had a lot of money, you'd have your own facility um, uh, back east, you know, Texas, Florida, and just have your own little compound. But that's that was that was past my point.
1: What are the factory teams? I mean, I mean, I'm sure there's you know major competitors, but like, what what were the major factory
0: teams? So you have um, factory Honda, factory Kawasaki, uh, used to have factory Suzuki, and they shut down. You have factory Yamaha. You have Gas Gas, KTM, Husqvarna, and that's pretty much uh, the top five or six factory teams right now. And then you have you probably have another ten to fifteen satellite teams, which are supported by factory or not supported by factory or just they're just backed by money from other people that are just into the sport or you have big manufacturers like wps or rocky mountain or something like that but talk it's, to
2: us about your your first sponsorship so i mean your dad your parents your family invested so much in this it had to mean just so much to get to it so what was that experience like when you first secured the sponsorship
0: yeah so it was um Obviously being a privateer, you know, you have, you have little sponsorship, but it's just product here and there, you know, you're not really getting paid a check or nothing like that. So the whole foundation of my racing career is my dad, you know, coming up to that point until I started making paychecks, but, um, you know, which is, it's a, it's a different kind of sport. You know, you're, it's not like basketball or football where you're just buying a ball and this and that, and you're, you're playing a sport. This is like, my dad was spending 80 to $150,000 a year when I was an amateur just to go travel buy products, buy bikes, this and that. So it's not, it ain't cheap by no means. But, uh, you know, once I, once I turned pro and was actually making a bit of a paycheck, um, my first sponsors that were actually paying money was Fly Racing, which was probably about 2010, 2011. And then I had Motorsport Hillsboro, Motorsport Outlet, um, and just a couple other brands that were kind of pitching in and helping out a little bit.
2: So did they... I mean, is it still on you to purchase the parts, purchase the bikes and do everything? Or, I mean, do, do people start offering up bikes and support?
0: So when you're still a privateer, you're getting you're getting most of your product for free, like your, your bolt-on accessories, exhaust, uh, motor parts, this and that. When you're on a higher level privateer, if you're just kind of just starting off and you're just doing, barely making it, you're still paying for everything. You don't get a break, you know? And, you know, once you start proving yourself and proving a name and you're getting TV time and you're getting recognized, then that's when you start getting more free stuff. Um, But even when you're a privateer, like you're paying for motorcycles and you're paying for everything you're paying for travel. And and it's, it sucks because like you don't make shit. Like it's, everybody thinks like you make a lot of money and like if I was a privateer and I showed up in my own van, which I've done for a few years, you're paying your entry fee. It's crazy to me that you so you have to pay an entry fee, $140 or $250 a weekend for an entry fee to race Supercross. And you have to pay like $500 something for a hard card per series. So it's just like, you're already showing up at a, at a negative. You're not making shit at that point. Um, you're not getting any money from sponsors really to show up. And then you have, and then you race. So say a pri- privateer, the breakdown of the money is, is just junk. So if I was a privateer and I got 20th place, I'm making maybe two grand to finish 20th place in a main event. So it's like the money is, the money sucks when you're a privateer. It's, there's just like this massive gap of like broke or rich. So what,
1: uh, like, uh, if the guy that finished 20 makes two grand, what is the number one guy, the guy that finished first make?
0: Um, for, for like the purse money from the event, you're probably making, 12 to 13 grand, but then you're making a 100,000 bonus money from manufacturer. You're making another 20 000 to 50,000 from gear, your gear sponsorship. Then you're making, I'd say a, a win on a Supercross event on a factory rider. You're, you're probably grossing 200 a night on a win.
1: Damn. So, I mean, the money is not really coming from the event. the money's really coming from the sponsorships and the you know and the fact that you have uh fucking deals and this, and this guy pays here and bonuses so I mean that 's really how the money's being made so, as a privateer, unless you have that, you 're just out there
0: fucking fighting for peanuts yeah, yeah, you're out there just busting your ass, putting your life on the line for nothing and that's that's why i <clears throat> that's why I truthfully hate the sport a lot because there's no middle ground there's no like there's no backing, there's no support. And it's been the same way for 30 years, you know what I mean? There's there's no like, it's it's hard to say that, that there needs to be like a union or there needs to be some type of base of pay, but then you get into trying to figure out who deserves it and who doesn't deserve it. You know, who's putting in the work, like how hard are these guys really working for this paycheck? So it's kind of, it's tough to say, but it, it does, it sucks. There's there's no There's no middle ground, it's either you're you're paying money every week in a race or you're getting paid to race?
2: A lot of outside distractions. So even thinking of that, is that hanging in the back of your mind when it comes to racing? Or when you're racing, do you just zone in on the moment and able to really express yourself through movement?
0: Um, you definitely like when you're racing, you zone in whether you're a privateer or you're a factory guy. But it's, it's more or less like the stress level and like it's the time that it pulls away from you during the week when you're a privateer of like, what, what you have to do and how much money it's going to cost to get to the race. Like, what does my bike need? I need to buy this. I need to buy that. I got to cut this corner to get this to race. So you're constantly, you're stressed out the whole week until you get to the race. And then you're, and then you're stressed at the race because you're wondering, you know, is it, did I put in enough effort this week? Did I, did I put enough time on the bike? Am I going to do good? Is my bike going to stay together? Like, So there's so many crazy things when you're a privateer. of just, you're always uh, questioning yourself. Like, is my bike going to finish the race? Do I have enough money to get to the next race? You know? And then, um, which that was me for four or five years, um, just doing that whole program. And then like, literally once I signed my full-time factory deal, um, with uh, Joe Gibbs racing in 2015, like I went, like I literally went from stressing out every weekend, to just taking all that shit and putting it in a ball and throwing it in the trash. And then I was like, cool, I have money now. I get a, I get a paycheck. I literally call and say, hey, I need this part, that part, this, that, whatever I need. Ship straight to me in California. Um, it was insane. So I went from being broke, had no money, to just having everything I needed instantly. And that's kind of the thing that That took me to the next level because obviously I went from top 10, top 15 rider to, you know, leading races, had a couple podiums that year and finishing top five every single weekend just from having the factory level stress level released off your back of just being able to focus 100% on racing and not worry 20% about racing and then the 80% how I'm going to get there. How am I going to pay for it?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, well, it's really support. You know, now all of a sudden you have a, you know, big corporation support, which tends to make a lot of these problems just seem very minute. Uh, do you think it made you hungrier or do you think it, uh, it, you know, did it allow you to just focus on what or was there just feeling like ah, oh, I made it a little bit like I don't have as big a chip on my shoulder?
0: Um, No, I got I was even more hungry, man. I, I was just because of my background of how I grew up and. <laughs> I knew that that was such a, like nobody ever believed that I'd ever make it factory. Like I had doubters. I had people talk shit, you know, this dude would never make it. So it was one of those things where I made it. I got that factory ride. I'm going to work as hard as I can. And I'm going to, I'm going to be 10 times more hungry to win a race to just be that guy just to prove that this is, this is all the hard work it takes to get to this point. And I'm not just going to step into it and just half ass it. I'm going to give it a hundred percent. And And do as much, do whatever I pretty much can to optimize my, my, uh, advantage in life.
2: When you signed with Gibbs, did you keep your same training coaches, partners, or did you seek a a different crew?
0: Yeah. So when I first, even when I signed my first deal with Joe Gibbs, I kept my same trainer. So I went from sharing him with other riders as like, you know, you get this amount of time. I have this guy, this guy, this guy. Too exclusive. So then I hired him as my full-time trainer that traveled to the races with me, um, just to be that much better. And, mm-hmm. and that's, that, that's what, that's what it takes in the sport is like, it's, it's, it's every, all of us are so fast at that top level. It's just critiquing the small things and just taking those small things off your shoulders and, and the pressure off of just having that person there for this weekend to handle the dumbest little things, whether it's food, whether it's your diet during the weekend, it's it's all those little things that add up that uh, that made the biggest difference for me, and that's why you know it's, it's the saying you got to spend money to make money, and that's the same as motocrosses, you know, hiring trainers, you know, it's trainers, personal assistants, people just helping you, you know, get through your day and and just make it the best you can.
2: We, yeah, from a coaching perspective. If you're able to focus on one individual athlete, you can give them so much more feedback. And then, I mean, for lack of a better term, protect them from the outside. Imagine like the sport of Olympic weightlifting and coach Dave Spitz. He takes care of all that, allows his athletes to focus. So yeah, that was, that was an awesome move. Sticking with your guy. I appreciate that. And then letting them really invest in you and, and hone in. That's cool. Yeah, no, the, uh, it sounds a lot like PBR, like professional bull riders and rodeo
1: sounds like a lot. Like, you know, those guys are, those guys know. don't lift weights. Uh, no, they actually, a bunch of them train like, um, like, I like they do. I mean, it's so varied. I remember meeting, um, one guy that was a PBR guy who like, Hey, I, I like to surf. Like that was his whole deal was surfing to stay loose. So, I mean, this whole thing, like some of those surfing dudes,
2: mechanical bulls,
1: some of those dudes aren't wow. even fucking bull riders. They're just fucking thrill seekers that want to just hold on to a fucking 2000 pound bull. No. Yeah which I mean, sounds a lot like this thing where it's like, I'm going to get on this two wheeled fucking go-kart and I'm going to shoot myself in the air 40 feet. Yeah. You know? So, I mean, it's something that you relatively have to start young, you know I mean? Because, you know, if you don't have the background and it's not like, I mean, how old were you when you started riding? Uh, two or three years old. So so two or three years old. And it's like, as you got bigger, the jumps got bigger. And it's like, you kind of grow into it. It's like, um, I, I played pro football. And people always ask me they're like oh those hits would kill people i'm like yeah but we took those hits when i was 14. Yeah, and then yeah. when you're 15 16 you just everybody just gets bigger and the hits get bigger and they just seem like no different than what you saw now if you were to take somebody that never took the hit and you throw them out there they're gonna fucking get their neck broke
0: exactly that's what it's 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 training your body it's just like people ask me all the time like how did you crash and not break yourself like well because i've been doing it for so long i my body just naturally knows how to crash I know how to land. My body knows how to react when I hit the dirt. It's the same as football. You know, your body just, you know, it slowly teaches yourself how to take a hit and you know how to react when you get that hit. So it's, it's, it's crazy how the body can, uh, can learn those. uh,
1: I mean, uh, injuries are a major player in this deal. And, um, it seems like, you know, you had a major crash and that kind of ended or at least kind of put you at the end of your career. Like, can you get through like the, and I'm, I don't know if you want to get into it at all, but I mean, like, how do you manage injuries? And more importantly, injuries are just part of like, just part of the equation. Everybody's dealing with them, but it seems like real big catastrophic type stuff is really just kind of the, uh, what you're trying to avoid.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, injuries in this sport are tough because it's, you're taking yourself and you're, you're, we literally have, Uh it's more of like trying to figure out how to, how to build your body to last 10 months out of a 12 month year and because we don't get any, we don't get much time off. Cause we have, we're, we're trying to be injury free. We're racing from January till September, and we have maybe five, six, eight weekends off in that entire time frame. But in between we're riding, we're training, we're trying to avoid injury. And then we're done with our season. Then we're getting invited to go to Europe and race European races. So then by the time you're done with that, you have December. November, December to do kind of somewhat nothing. And, but then you can't say nothing because you want to let your body rest, but you got to start training for the next season. So it's, it's super tough to, to be consistent and, and to be injury free. But when you do get those injuries, it's, it, it really puts a damper in, in what you, what your program is for that year. But you just kind of, you almost just learn how to, if it's not a bad injury, like a broken bone, like you're, you're racing through it. You're not, you're not taking time off. I mean, there are some pussies out there that'll take time off and and abuse it and this and that. But for me, it was like, even though I had a factory deal, like I had one year deals. So if I fucked up one year, like I was always like stressed out because I don't have another year deal. So like, if I get hurt three rounds in, I'm like, okay, how bad is this injury? How bad is this going to affect you in, 10 weeks. Once you get to outdoors, is this injury going to lay you out? Then do I take off time now or do I take off time? Then am I going to get good results? Now it's so where I can sign my contract three months in, four months in, get that sealed, So I don't have to worry about it. So I could take off that three or four weeks then prepare for this series. So it, it's crazy with the injuries, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's like a cat and mouse game. You're just trying to figure out what's, what's okay to race and what's not okay to race. And it's that's where it got with me. It was stressful because I didn't have a lot of injuries, but when I had injuries, it it, it was bad. And it was like I said, I'm always in my one year contract deals, to where you're like, well, fuck, I can't even ride because my hands destroyed. But I don't have a ride next year, so I have to ride. You know, so you're pretty much taping your hands to the bars to hold on, and you know, it's just it sucks. But that's you know, it's just like an sport.
1: Did uh, is that pretty standard for all riders? One year deals?
0: Um, no, like if you're. If you're like a big top name guy, you're signing two, three year deals. And then if you're if you're like in my level, you know, where you're still a top guy, but there's like because teams are weird. You have an A rider and you have a B rider. Just like football, you have your first string, second string. So the first string guys are getting signed two, three year deals, four year deals. Um the B guy is getting one year's, maybe two year deals. So it's it's super tough, but but then again, I I kind of almost enjoyed having the one year deals because it kept me hungry. Like I was, I you see a lot of guys that get those three year deals, and and you can even see it now. It's like they get that deal, they get that money, they get that two three million dollars for a three year deal, and they get lazy. Like they they forget what it is to be hungry and to bust your ass every single day, and you take advantage of the money, and then they. They show it. They have one shitty year, two shitty years. And then they're like, Oh damn, my contract's up. Let me bust my ass. And then they just go back to the same phase. And it's happened with numerous riders that are out there. But I, you know, I mean, I enjoyed the one-year deals cause I, I enjoyed it, but I didn't cause it was, it was stressful as hell, you know, figuring out, am I going to have a ride next year? But then it paid off for me because me doing the one-year deal is like, I'd always bust my ass improve prove myself and get better every year. Then that next contract year, I'm getting paid twice as much as I did the year before because my work ethic and because my results, because I'm busting my ass 24 seven for what I want.
2: Well, the question is, is it the money or is it the man? John's shared some stories of some teammates that got paid (sighs) and then stopped playing. Dude. But then there's individuals that there were numerous still get paid. I'm sure there's some three year dudes that got paid and then man, I leveled up. I I played with dudes that uh, like
1: you could never like you would never know what they got paid like um even if they got paid a ton like they were still the same dude um yeah. you, you could give them every dollar in the world and they were still going to show up and play that game and then i played with another dude who they paid him and that guy fucking never ran again and i told him i'm like you pay that dude you're gonna never never gonna have him run mm-hmm. and he fucking i mean it's pretty funny man when people are hungry and then all of a sudden they're full i mean it's, yeah i mean it's probably i'm sure the exact same deal and uh that's not necessarily like the money it's just a mark of the individual you know, like they're uh, they're more into it for like, hey, like the money and the accolade and the security more so than like the fucking greatness.
0: Yeah, well, they weren't. They were raised a different way than than most people were that didn't have anything. You know, those the people that do that I, to me are the people that never had to fight for something in their life. You know, they always had things handed to them, and you know, they never knew what it was like grinding from the bottom and then making it to that position in life. But then not take advantage of the money and the paycheck. It was more just take advantage of the opportunity to be better, you know, week in, week out. But it's, I see it a lot, you know, but it's, it's crazy. That's just, that's just people's mentalities. They see money and a contract and they get lazy.
2: When, uh, sticking with travel, like you said, the Europe circuit, were some of the coolest places that you've been?
0: Um. So man, back when I was privateer, uh, um, I started traveling to Europe in... November or December of 2009, like my first year pro. And that was like, I made more money in Europe than I did in the States racing. So I got an opportunity from a couple of people that invited me to Europe. So my first, uh, trip to Europe, I think was Germany or Finland. Um, so I would go, I would, um, they'd cover your flight, your hotel, they would pick you up, they wouldn't pay you a single dollar you had to race to get your money. So like, if you, if you showed up and you didn't do shit, you wouldn't get paid. So you'd pretty much, you'd get a free vacation, no pay. So like, that's how I, that, so that even backs it up to like me, like, you know, fight or flight. Like I had like to make money, I had to win. I had to do good. So that's my mentality of what brought me into my later in my career just always being hungry. So then, you know, you're going over there, you're winning a weekend, you're making two to 4,000 euros, which converted to 55, $6,000 American, you know? So that was, which that was nice. So we, I probably did uh, three or four of those a year. So like my off seasons were, were traveling back and forth to um, I did Finland, Germany. Um, I was in Greece. I did Bulgaria, Australia, just kind of just bounced around just to those money races of, people that catch that word, Oh, Weston, he's, he's good over here. Like we can, we can, we could trust him for putting on a good show for our locals and blah, blah, blah. So I did that for four or five years up until when I turned factory. Um, and then I slowed down on doing the small money races because it was, there's too much risk for no reward Mm -hmm. when you have a factory deal. Cause, and then, and then back it up with that is your, um, your teams won't let you go. Like Mm -hmm. they'll be like, if you're not going over there and making X amount of money, you're not going it's not worth the injury it's not worth the time of the headache so
1: what uh like um, i mean obviously I've, I've been to motocross and seen some cool shit. but uh when you go to europe i mean are the tracks the same is it the same feel like i mean shit. i think we went to it at um was it uh the motocross it was uh it was somewhere in orange county i want to say like angel stadium or some shit. we went to and uh i mean they had fucking fireworks and it
0: was this like huge kind of st- uh what's that you're in a stadium. Yeah so you're at Angel stadium
1: then right Yeah yeah it was yeah. at Angels and dude it was I mean it, it was an epic like experience uh, experience but it was like a fucking production like they put on a big like a good show it was like when we went to the X Games in Philadelphia years ago like you show up to the X Games dude there's fucking rock bands I mean it was pretty neat uh like when you go to these other countries is it similar to that or is it more I don't I don't know
0: um it's like one or the other so like when I first started I was doing like the budget arena cross supercross races over in europe it was like it was in a hockey arena where if you jump too high you're gonna hit your head on the ceiling (laughs) like that's the level of that the opening ceremony sucks you know they have like two fireworks and that's it you know so and then you go to uh and then when i started racing in germany it's like a five or six race series like these people are savage insane opening ceremonies like it's like a massive production of crazy madness shit people lighting each other on fire running running down the track fucking this that it's it's insane over in germany and then a couple other ones are pretty pretty high-end cool stuff but um as far as like the racing wise the indoor stuff is is it's like 25 percent of our stadiums in the us they're super small stadiums The, the the racing is 15 20 second lap times versus 50 second lap times as far as the Supercross stuff, but then once you move into uh, the outdoor series where you're out of a stadium, it's it's comparable. You have the same amount of grounds, the same amount of square footage of an actual track. So you're you're the same outdoors, but indoors, you're it's just it's not Supercross is not it's not a it's not a thing in Europe. Is it
1: uh like uh, would you say that uh, sports American dominated? Are there foreign riders that are pretty good?
0: Yeah. So we have, we have a lot of foreign riders that came over now and they actually won a couple of championships. Um, French rider won the outdoor championship last year. Um, German riders won a championship. So we definitely have, we definitely have quite a few, you know, we have, I say the fastest ones here, we have French, German, and Australian, as far as um, the top three countries that come to our our country and race that actually, you know, win races on a monthly basis.
1: So it's basically the world versus Riverside.
0: Yeah. It's <laughs> exactly.
1: a great t-shirt. <laughs> no, I mean, it's like Riverside. And like, uh, it was funny. I was trying to explain it to somebody, I'm like, you know, anything over the mountains is fucking Palmdale. So you have Riverside, then you get to the mountains and then it's all Palmdale. Yeah. I'm like, that's high desert. Like everything was just Palmdale to us. So we, we used to, uh, my parents bought a place in Mammoth years ago. So we used to fucking go up there and, uh, go mountain bike and off road and fish and ski and all that. So. 395 and that whole thing it was like over the mountains palmdale and the next stop was bishop and mammoth
0: yeah very much up there <laughs> no. all just tweakers and crackheads in that area i was gonna say meth you know <laughs> just and, got the best of Palmdale. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah i mean all, all you got in palmdale is in and out and meth that's about all you got yeah. it's that's fucking funny. that's it <laughs> yeah. so dude what's uh so so you moved to idaho obviously you got out of the ie so like what's uh like what are you doing presently i mean i know you retired and as i was going through your bio man fucking injury that looks like you had in france was i mean yeah you mentioned that
2: your your teams wouldn't let you travel like what what led to this life-changing trip to
0: to paris yeah so back to that was um as i mean as the teams wouldn't let you travel was (laughs) was they wouldn't let you just show up and do like the stuff i used to do like the back backyard arena cross series like They would let us race, um, probably two or three events out of the year over in Europe, but it's, it's like, it's like the same promotion level as what we would do here. So they know that it's done right and it's not janky. So they were more safe with letting us do it at that point. Um, and the money was a lot more. So you'd, you'd average getting just show up money, get on the bike ride. You're getting 30 to a hundred thousand dollars in two nights just to show up and race. So that was the difference of of let the teams letting you show up and race in a European series, because then it's like, we're trying to justify to them, hey, we're just, we're building our brand, we're building our audience across the world now, and we're getting in front of these people, you know, selling tickets, you know, selling our name more or less. So then they were kind of more lenient with us going over there and racing, and then it, and then now it's, I mean, it, it turned into, now there's probably 15, 15 guys that show up every year to Europe and race the European series now. And then obviously two is they're also making a international series. Now mm-hmm. in Europe, I think a couple of places starting in, I think next year, but, um, but yeah, anyway, so then you have the problem like with me and other people that get injured, you know, you, I actually, I was supposed to be going to Japan and racing in Japan, same time frame that i got hurt in france so i was supposed to be in japan racing the promoter was a total douchebag screwed everything up so nobody went and then i got a call on a tuesday i was training on the bicycle from a promoter in france uh eric bernard he's like what are you doing i'm like training he's like do you want to race this weekend i'm like where france you got to leave wednesday i'm like it's fucking tuesday like I was like, well, whatever, send me, send me the contract, how much money, this and that. And I was like, fuck it, let's do it. You know, you only, you live once, you know, you don't, you don't get opportunities to make that much money in in one, two night. So I was like, screw it. Let's go. We did a team deal with me and uh, Justin Hill that was on the team with me at the time. We flew over one mechanic. We flew over parts, um, crazy last minute event, you know, shit that I don't like to do because last minute things not turn into that, but it's just it's just all that whole thing where you don't want to do anything. And then you tell yourself let's do it and then shit happens and whatnot, but then show up racing. Everything's good. I think I got third, the first race or I don't even remember. It's been so long, but then just like that, you come around the first turn, um, kind of me and another rider collided. I go down, I was third off the gate off the first turn. And then I don't remember anything, but just from the video is, is another rider, I landed, rolled over on my back on the landing of a step on, step off, and he pretty much frame cased my the face of my helmet, which is like obviously any helmet we have cutouts for goggles, so there's not a lot of protection in the front of the helmet. And he frame cased it. And uh, what do you there, mean frame
1: cased? Like landed his frame on your helmet? Yes,
0: yeah, so the bottom of his dirt bike landed straight into the face of my helmet, like the open part where the goggles go and all that. Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: So imagine a 250 pound dirt bike the rider's 170 pounds over a jump and landing straight down on the face of your your, your helmet. And, uh, you know, from there it was shit, dude. It was, uh, it was crazy. I was, I was out. Don't remember anything. Um, almost died at the track because my leg almost bled out. I almost died from choking on my own blood. So thankfully for the medical staff, you know, by two down my throat, so I didn't, Choking on my own blood and that and sewing up my leg. And it was pretty much 18 days in France, um, in the ICU. I was there for 14 days. ICU had four surgeries. They completely rebuilt my entire face. Um, so I pretty much, I did a Le fort fracture one, two, and three, where my skull separated from my, like my whole entire face, the bridge of my nose, my eye sockets through here, were completely broken all the way through. And then, um, I snapped the bridge of my mouth, my jaw snapped off. So I had all three parts of my face were like completely separated. My uh, orbital sockets were crushed in. Um, so I had <clears throat> 20, 24 plates and three screws put in my face. in four surgeries, they cut me from ear to ear, pulled my face down, plated my upper, upper face, skull, uh, cut my lips open, my eye sockets open, jaw open. So I pretty much had my whole face taken off and, and re put together within 14 days. And, uh, so just, just crazy shit, dude. And it was, uh, it was a struggle cause I, I couldn't talk cause I was tricked. Um, and then later on in that time frame, it was, uh, I think about eight, 10 days in where I kind of came to it when they started taking me off, uh, the morphine, I noticed that I couldn't see out of my eye very well. And I'm like, what the fuck? Like, it's just like, it's all blurred and black. And then, um, so then, but the problem was, is nobody spoke English. So Mm -hmm. my dad was over there. My mechanic was there. Um, so then luckily we had some awesome people over there from France that spoke English that were able to translate what's going on. And then they were saying, oh, you've had optic nerve damage in your right eye. We've shot steroid injections in like, there's no, there's nothing changing at that point. So then, so long story short, then at that point I knew. I had optic nerve damage because the pressure of the motorcycle landing on my face, it protruded my eyeball and tore my optic nerve fibers. So then mm. fuck there's another, but you know what I mean? Then you're starting to think like, am I ever going to race again? Yes. No. Maybe. Can I try to race with, with hundred percent vision in one eye and limited in the other, Tried that didn't really work out. So, uh, just crazy. So that's, you know, but that, that shit is like, that can happen anywhere. It, it can't just happen in Europe. But if I wouldn't have gone, I still would be racing to this day, you know, but mm-hmm. that's, he says, she says.
1: Well, it's funny. As I pulled your name up, I was looking at it and uh, I was like, man, if only they had made you better looking. You're like, "If you're going to do all this work, dude. You could have made me look like a supermodel,
0: dude. I want to look like Zoolander. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I guess if I, if I could have <laughs> spoken to them in English. You know? Yeah. You're
1: know. you like, make me better looking. Oh, no. Tom dude. Cruise. Uh, dude. Ah, uh, fuck. Like, uh, just, I don't know if people, like, if, if you guys, uh, you know, Google his name, you can kind of go through and there was just, uh, um, them kind of giving a, a blow by blow of what happened, but fuck, dude. I mean, was there, uh, I mean, obviously you've, you know, come out the other side and, you know, you're sitting here having a lucid conversation with us, but were they expecting, you know, uh, you'd be blind, um, you know, never be able to you know, regain the ability to speak? I mean, you know, I mean, brain damage the whole nine yards. So I'm wondering, uh, like, you know, that's the prognosis they give you and you're like, fuck you. I ain't taking this
0: yeah exactly so that was the funny i know it's not funny but i don't know i'm life's life and whatever i take it as it is but uh well if you can't laugh at this shit then then what are you going to be able to laugh at yeah like me like i'm not afraid to die like that's that's my life like i've lived a great life like if i fucking die right now it's i'm content with what i've done
1: dude i say and, the same thing if i see a big asteroid we're just going to sit down and have a drink and just yeah. fucking be like it was a good life
0: Tuck some whiskey and laugh and fucking later. <laughs> but uh yeah so the doctor, every doctor I saw in the States, because I had another like six surgeries when I came back here just for cosmetic stuff. Everyone looked at my x-ray and they're like, what the fuck happened to you? Like, they're like, you shouldn't be alive. Just from the pure trauma of like the poor fracture doing it on a one, two and three brain damage. Um, none of that happened. You know, obviously you hit your head that hard. You know, you, I mean, I hit my head on a dirt bike all the time. So I already consider myself. On that level of stupidity, you know, for some things. But every doctor was like, I saw seven doctors that are like, you shouldn't be alive. Like, just after that type of um, accident and that, that type of just force landing on your head, you, you should be dead. But I mean, that's just, then my response was, hey, it's hard to kill an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: You, know, you got to tell them, you're like, you know, usually the good die young. I'm going to live to be fucking 200. So fuck off.
0: <laughs> Dick, like <laughs> whatever shit happens.
1: <laughs> so, you know, uh, my mom's 82 and I tell her the same thing. I'm like, people like you live to be a hundred plus.
0: Yeah. And
1: she's like, fuck you. Hang up on me all the time. I'm like, well, that's just goes to prove it. you going to live forever. <laughs> exactly. Nice. Well, dude. So, so now that, uh, I mean, obviously this happened and there was like a huge arduous uh, rehab process. So, I mean, like, was it like, uh, learning to speak again? I mean, or did you, you know, come out of the surgeries or what was that process on, on the rehab side?
0: Yeah. So actually, um, I had no brain damage at all. So like I was able to talk once my trach was out. <clears throat> that was the, the hardest thing was the trach. Like once they pulled the trach out, well, I had, I forced them. Like I was in the hospital and like these fuckers, like they did a good job, but the nurses were shit. Like a lot of the nurses were terrible. Like they would keep pumping you full of morphine. And I had a, um, I had a, a morphine system put on my, put into my bloodstream, like for, like they press a button or I could press a button and shoot morphine. So these fucking nurses, like I, I was trying to, I had a, a notepad and I was writing on, on a, on paper. Cause I couldn't talk. And I'm telling my dad, like, tell them to fucking take this out of my arm. Like it's, it's slowing me down from recovering and getting out of here. And, dude, they'd come by and they'd press the button without even my consent and asking me. And I'm like these motherfuckers, dude. So like I ended up flipping out. Um, they took the morphine machine out then, uh, then slowly started getting better. Took the breathing tube out. Um, what else? I had a feeding, a tube feeding line in my nose and all that shit. So it was like on that 14th day, I was like, if I don't get up and get moving, I'm going to be here forever. So like, my mentality is just like, I'll lose my shit. I'll fucking rip everything off the walls that I can get me going. So then finally, as soon as like two days after they got me off, all the shit dude, I was sitting up out of bed. I was, I was spinning on a little bicycle thing, like just getting my body moving to get out of there. And then they put me in a lower room. And then at that point, I'm like, I have to get out of here. Like I'm getting, I'm getting just uncomfortable. So they put me in that room. I just like take the stitches out of my head all this shit, book flights and got the hell out of there. So fast forward to that, um, back in the States, the trach, I still, it was, I had like a gnarly hole in my neck from the trach. So like just to talk, I had to sit there and, and like an old smoker and cover my neck just to somewhat raspy talk. <clears throat> and even at this day, I still have my throats just completely wrecked from that. So like I'm always clearing my throat, um, you know, coughing just cause it's super scratchy from that. But that was probably the biggest pain in the ass. And then, obviously, with my eye, was learning how to operate with vision in one eye. And I'm talking that was driving was hard at first because then you could you can't judge your judgment and your your depth perception is gone. Like you have nothing left. Like so, so you
1: you only a vision in one eye.
0: Yeah. So my left eye is my 100 percent, and my right eye has about five percent of vision in it, which is it's yeah, more so- because it's blurry. So. It affects my good eye because it's putting a blur into my good eye. So
1: Yeah, so, no, uh, yeah, one eye, no depth perception. So
0: yeah. So it was crazy. Just just driving, getting used to the smallest things. Like, and then the biggest thing I even did this today is like you don't remember that you don't have peripherals in your right eye. You can't see. So when you're walking places and you're you're moving and there's people around, you just fucking your your reaction is to just turn right and go, and then you run into shit you, you hit stuff all the time because you're not thinking in time. Like you're just so used to that one site, you know, that, and just, there's just a lot of things like the hardest thing for me was trying to figure out how to put my credit card in a chip reader because that depth perception of that little slit, you're like, you know, you think, you think you're there, but you're not, you know, so there's so many things that took me time to get used to, um, with the eye situation when I got back home, um, that, and I had, I had, like I said, six, seven surgeries. I had a whole nose reconstruction, um, surgery. I had surgery on lips. I had just tons of shit on my eye. I had stem cells, more, um, more, uh, steroid injections in my eye, nothing, no progress on anything. So that was kind of a bummer with that, just because I, you know, I wanted to race. I wasn't done. You know, I feel like I was just that 2018 was my last year racing. And that was my, you know, one of my best years of my, where I was starting to peak back up again and, and go for it. And so it was just a bummer, just kind of just to, just to have to accept that you weren't going to race anymore, but like I said, it's life. And now at this point in life, I'm, I moved on retired full time. Um, I work for Western power sports and fly racing now. So that was kind of my reason to move into Idaho because of that's where their headquarters is at. And also we all know California is just a crazy ass liberal state and people are insane. It's, it's not even, I don't even like going, like all my friends are there still. And I'm there like, when are you going to come visit? And I'm like, you can fucking come to Idaho, dude. It's, it's clean. People are nice. Like I don't want to go back there. But, uh, so I dipped out of there, um, rolled up here just, just so I could be closer to here with this company and, and just work hands on. And, and that's from everything with, you know, shooting products and catalogs and, and just being, Closer to the the shop is kind of what I wanted to do, and I wanted to get out of California. So
1: Uh, We're with you on that one. All all my family still lives in California, and uh, my mom's like, when are you coming to visit? I'm like, oh, just... I mean, Orange County's not bad. uh, Like, like I always feel like Orange County, and maybe maybe the IE just... Actually, I don't even like going to the IE. Um, But, uh, uh, like, at least Orange County's decent. But, uh, man, it's still... Yeah, like you said, dude, it's fucking crazy out
2: there. I was going to say, good on you for staying connected, to the sport in a way that you're you're capable and i mean are you still mentoring coaching or connecting with any dudes that are racing
0: um so yeah so i wanted to stay <clears throat> my my thing was is uh i wanted to stay close in the sport but not in the sport like i wanted to i wanted to be involved but not fully involved i didn't want to be like the guy that just jumps straight into racing his whole life and then being another person that you're not in the sport. So I, I did the deal with fly because they have been with me since 2009. So they've, they've had my back, they've taken care of me. They're like family to me. So I wanted to get with them because there was more than just the opportunity to do a brand ambassador deal with them on the dirt bike side. They have multiple brands. So I'm a brand ambassador for five, six companies under, Western Power Sports that owns these companies, Fly Racing, Hard Drive, Harley Parks Line. Um, I do, you know, Chico Tires, Sedona Tires, Highway 21 Apparel. So I cover I cover so many different aspects through the company that it keeps me busy and not just stuck in in one environment. So that's kind of why I rolled into that position, because I won't just get tired with the same thing of motocross. I can go and say, hey, guys, let's focus more on this brand. Let's focus more on doing more events with this instead of just me being stuck in one
1: yeah no i pulled up the website looks like they do uh like moto street uh mountain biking bmx uh water sports so a
0: little bit of everything they're one of the fly racing is is the i'm 100 sure it's the biggest growing gear brand today from from a couple years ago so atvs john
1: uh, dude, I, uh, man, um, you know, we live out here in Texas and, uh, um, like, so my kids have, uh, like, like my son has a little Polaris and shit. And so it's, uh, we were over at our neighbors and like, my kids were like screaming around on all the kids deal. And like, they came home and they're like, can we get these things? And I'm like, dude, I would have loved to have one of this stuff. Like I remember when I was a kid to like have any of this stuff, I would have been fucking excited. I remember when I told my dad, I wanted this stuff. My dad would was like fucking, we ain't paying for that shit. So good oh. on your dad for seeing, you know, sparking that and actually You know, my dad was like, fuck it. I ain't paying for any of that shit. So you got to earn it all yourself. But That's cool, man. So what, uh, so now, I mean, you're obviously working for fly racing. I mean, any involvement, I mean, it seems like you got a little bit of a bad taste in your mouth for, uh, for moto, but any, uh, any like way you could make your way back. I mean, is there, is there kind of like the NFL with their front office, something to do or just you're, you're good on that and you'd rather work for the
0: suppliers. (laughs) Yeah. I I don't want to be. I mean, I talked a little bit to some of the guys at Feld, because Feld Entertainment is the ones that put the show on. They're they're the money backers that put it on. And I've had a couple of opportunities with them and a couple conversations with you know, whether it's helping here and there with doing some commentating or there was even a monster truck thing brought up, but it's like <clears throat> I don't know, I don't want I'm just selfish now, because my whole life I've been selfish with racing, But so now it's like, why change now and and just do something that I don't really want to do. So me going with fly allows me to have a foot in, but not two feet in and actually be tied down to the organizations that put the circuit on. I could still do whatever I want with Western power sports and create my own brand. we're doing that with the actual companies that run the circuit is like you're under, you're under their fist. You can't, you, you jump when they say jump. That's not that's not who I am. I don't I don't take answers from anybody, and I, I do what I want to do. And if it's not going to work out, tell me. I'll find something else to do because that's always what I've been. So, in that aspect, no, I would never, unless the money was crazy good. But I just I don't see myself, you know, dipping in hundred percent into that actual <clears throat> motocross only. What's uh,
1: so? What does your training look like today? I mean, obviously you are retired. Now you're kind of on this uh, sponsor kind of uh, you know gear side. So what does the training look like? You still banging weights still riding the bike? Like,
0: yeah. So it was a while. Like it it took me probably eight months before I could start, you know, training again after my injury and stuff. But then I kind of went through that phase of like you bust your ass for so many years and then you're, you're so strict on your diet and your training program. Then I went like six, seven, eight months of just like, screw it. Like I'm going to eat whatever I want to eat. I'm going to drink all the fucking time. So I went from, like my raceway was like 195 up to 225, 230, and then I'm like, holy shit, dude! Like you're fucking fat. <laughs> like then, you know, you then you're just like, okay, cool, I did it. I had fun. I had my fun. I I did whatever. So, you know, now my training program is is obviously up in Idaho. It's it's beautiful, man. We have mountain bike trails. I, I could ride across the street from my house and ride dirt bikes, mountain bikes. Um, the river's five minutes from my house, so I just. Now it's just a lot of mountain biking and then, um, you know, occasional two, three days a week in the gym just to, you know, stay strong and all that, but it's nothing, it's nothing crazy like it used to be. Um, now it's just more pleasure, you know, just for fun and, and not, you know, you still have that, that grind of like, Oh, I'm going to fucking smash this hill. Like, you know, I'm going to see how high to take it, you know, but now it's just for fun. You know, you're not, you're not, you don't have to prove anything anymore. I've already proved my life, you know, now it's just, it's fun. Uh, no kids, uh, no kids. Nope. Not yet. Trying, but nothing yet.
1: Well, hopefully it's soon that you, you got some little ones you can get on the bikes or would you, uh, have your kids go through the, the kind of the, uh, I guess you could say like the dry spin of, uh, of motocross or would you keep them out or more recreational?
0: Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, I've had this conversation a lot is like, I don't know where the sport's going to be even in 10, 15 years let alone do i want to deal with that headache of of like yes it's a badass sport it's a man sport but like the bigger picture i'd rather almost train my kid to doing something else that you know makes them a better living and and it's not as is up and down and it doesn't take as much money and effort to get to to that place you know to be able to make money cuz you know there's only 10 15 guys that make money in this sport and it's it's a very small window mm-hmm. But i'd let them ride but i i don't think i'd ever let them have the opportunity to pursue racing because it's just it's a lot of it's a lot of work
1: well i mean but uh think about you as a mentor and the access and the fact that you know so many more people than what you're you know you and your dad knew growing up you probably have an opportunity but yeah people mm-hmm. ask me the same question would you let your kids play football i'm like 100 percent. it was fucking great i loved every minute of it do i think that they're going to go play in the nfl I mean, shit, dude, like the chances of that are so slim for, mm-hmm. uh, you know, fucking middle-class white kid from Southern California. <laughs> uh, you know, it doesn't happen all that often. So, Hey man, as long as they're doing something. So
2: yeah. well, cool. Uh, some fun questions. Yeah. What's your favorite racing movie of all time? doesn't have to be bikes. I mean, we throw cars in there. Um, favorite racing movie.
0: I think it What was that last one with the dude, was it, was it fast Ford? and
2: furious nine wild hogs.
0: <laughs> uh biker boys Ford versus ferrari or, or the one yeah that- oh yeah
1: yeah yeah the, yeah Ford, uh with shelby and uh oh, that was fucking great uh who was that christian bale
2: i don't yeah. know the real man's name
1: uh it was ken so it was uh carol shelby and ken i can't remember ken's name
0: yeah or that um what was that with the chicks rode the dirt bikes looking all slutty um i don't know 10 miles there's like four or five of the chicks they're all like doing tricks and shit on the bike um this is like like 10 years ago they had like stunt riders do this stuff uh um,
1: was it uh was it that movie Torque? charlie's angels
0: oh day. Okay. Is that a
1: racing movie? I'm in, uh, dude. There was that awful movie, Torque. I don't even know if you ever saw that movie. It was so fucking bad. They were on street bikes, what and then year? they go to the desert, and then magically they're on enduros with street bike fairings. What is it? It was called Torque. It was. Oh, it's fucking. It's terrible. It's we, as, it's as bad as Biker Boys. I don't know what? if you do. You ever saw the movie Biker Boys? Oh, I
2: found Torque. If yeah. this is 2004, if we're gonna throw Charlie's Angels in there, I gotta throw Lost Boys in there for their bike game. Yeah, well, you got vampires riding fucking enduro. Two two stars. Torque got two stars. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, it's fucking terrible. I think I watched it on, on an airplane, which might be the only reason I would have watched
0: it. Movies after COVID now, obviously, two are just garbage. I don't know if you guys pay attention, but all movies now suck after COVID. Uh, I think the only
1: good stuff's on Netflix and Amazon. Torque Ice Cube is... Like, yeah, Ice Cube. Like, is- like we started... I was telling Tex... Uh, We watched or uh, there's a a series on Netflix called The Last Kingdom, which is based off of um, a set of books. I think it was called like the Saxon Chronicles and it chronicles like eight, nine hundred AD or like the, you know, the Saxons versus the Danes and this whole deal. It's pretty fucking good. Like it's way better, you know, because Hollywood's all about making like a, you know, 90 minute, two hour movie. And what's cool with these series and I think what Game of Thrones showed us was that you could like have these like epic tales where they can get into so much character development and it's mm. just such a better experience.
0: Yeah, no, it is. That's all. That's all I watch. Downstairs, like movies are just even Netflix movies just suck. You're like, what did I watch it? Like, uh, I fucking hate Hollywood. Yes. Like it,
1: it, it, like these fucking narratives and what these people push is fucking so far beyond. I feel like they, uh, they're like so detached from fucking reality. I watch this shit. I'm like, this is awful. Yeah, they don't even know what reality is anymore. <laughs> okay, How next one.
0: Yeah, is-
1: uh, who, who would you say? The best frontman in in in, oh, dude, uh, in, let's do in, in rock history, like like uh, rock and roll. I, I don't know. What, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure I know what kind of music you like. But uh, <laughs> uh, like, think about rock bands. Like the t- like when you think of a frontman, who's who would you say is like the quintessential number one frontman of a rock band? Oh. Well, we were arguing about this this morning. That's why I'm bringing it up. Um, I don't even
0: know his name, but I'm gonna go. Metallica. Oh, James Hetfield. I
2: yeah, James Hetfield, Metallica. That's I said. He, he's right up there. Well, here's my argument against that. Metallica is a band, and they get along. I need frontman who's burning it all down, throwing caution to the wind. If uh, if the band survives, the frontman he's not a frontman. Ah, uh, okay. Well, then, like, what about the Rolling Stones? They've never broken up. Mick Jagger is not a quintessential frontman. Well, here's the argument against that. We know the guitar player's name, oh, Keith Richards. Sh- if you know the guitar player's name, there's not a frontman. It's a band. Dude, your logic is so flawed. Why? <laughs> Freddie Mercury, burn it to the ground. Kurt Cobain, crash burn. Dead. So 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 that the prerequisite is death? No, you gotta burn everything to the ground. So Jim Morrison is is like the best front man. <clears throat> well, Liam Gallagher burned everything to the ground.
1: Uh I, I'm going with the best frontman for me is uh Chris Cornell because he was uh not only uh sound uh, Soundgarden he was fucking Chris Cornell, rocked it by himself, and then started Audio Slave,
2: which still fucking slaves Well, me. there's also Liver King Brian Johnson, ACDC frontman.
1: Oh, well,
2: is, are you an ACDC fan or are you a Bon Scott fan? Do you
1: even know who fucking Bon Scott was in the ACDC? Group? For our listeners, you should educate. Who is this <laughs> man to speak of? <laughs> bon Scott was the original singer for ACDC, and he drank himself to death. Hence, Where'd when ACDC wrote the song, Have a Drink on Me. It was their ode to uh, to Bon Scott drinking himself to death. Boom! Great frontman. Okay, so he going with Hatfield Metallica. Okay, I'm I'm doing big big Metallica fan, so I agree with you on that one.
0: Yeah. Anyone else? No, I don't. I wouldn't even know. I'm like not a big music. I mean, I listen to music, but I'm not like a big knowledgeable music person. Who wrote no names, and I'm
1: what just kind of music you listen to. Uh Corn and, Limp Biscuit. you still stuck in that kind of like uh, neo rock?
2: Fred Durst frontman. <laughs> <laughs> Bizkit, well, he's new from rock. the
1: IE. The, uh, fucking uh, Limp Biscuit's still big in the IE.
0: Well, not. I don't. wouldn't say that. Shit. I'm just. I, fuck,
1: I'm. I'm just talking shit, dude.
0: Was a thing when his new album just came out, and he had like one song that was good, and then the rest of it, I was like, "What the fuck is this guy saying?" Right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm like, I'll listen to anything country rock, old school rock. Um, None of the new rap is, that shit's garbage. I don't even know what they're saying. Um, I'm with you, dude. Uh, we we just went. Uh, yeah.
1: It was last weekend uh, Snoop Dogg uh, came. And it's uh, it was Snoop Dogg. And they called it Mount Westmore. It was Snoop Dogg, Ice Cube, E40, too short. And I think Warren G was supposed to be there, but he didn't show up. So we didn't get to hear Regulate. But it was fucking hilarious. It was like being in high school all over again. I was sitting there listening to it. And I was like, holy shit, this is like high school and people were fucking loving it. So well, You should have you could have just seen that at the Super Bowl. You didn't even have to go in person. Oh, it, it was. Uh, so, it turns out that one of the guys, uh, when we lived in in Newport, one of the dudes that used to train with us, uh, Snoop bought half of his production company. So, he's Snoop's partner. And so, he puts on all of his shows in production. So, he was coming out to Austin and uh, hit me up. And I'm like, he's like, hey, you want to see Snoop? I'm, I didn't even know any of this. He's like, oh, yeah, well, he's my partner. I'm like, sweet, let's go. And uh, it was at something called the Roundwalk round rock amphitheater which i'd never even heard of and we fact- fucking couldn't even find it because it's in back of a jc penny in an open field <laughs> it was seriously like the most ghetto shit i've ever been to there was like a fence and like, it was yeah it was it was it was like one of those places you show up and you're like all right somebody's gonna get fucking shot and it's probably yeah. gonna be the big fucking six foot five white dude
0: <laughs> most likely <laughs> yeah
1: they always fuck when they, whenever the shooting starts that's why i gotta stay low and fucking agile yeah, just gotta start crawling. <laughs> yeah all right, what, you got anything else for?
2: Him? Well, Bruce Springsteen
1: for a front man, and, the, the, and, and the the the, man,
2: An E Street Band. Exactly. Oh, he, he's still stuck. Here's on another theory. I'm sorry. It, it's well, all right. It's all right. Get it out. My, it out. if I'm yeah. lead, I need my name and then my band's name. Bruce Springsteen, the E Street Band, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Those are lead men. Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. Oh, well, we, we don't. We can get lead women. Shut it down, Heart Then there's heart. Yeah, there's heart names. with okay uh, we'll couch that question um i just think
1: your your thinking is flawed on the fact that it 100 percent, because okay. i don't know enough about music yeah. i'm just <laughs> arguing for argument's sake somebody will be listening to this podcast fucking stabbing themselves in the eye with a pencil because they're like the biggest fucking rock band and we've completely just oh van hagar all in <sighs> <laughs>
0: I, do like I don't Sammy have any Hagar. more questions.
1: Yeah, no. I mean, uh, uh I was telling him to uh, Sammy Hagar has like a podcast where he goes and interviews people and uh he showed up to like go to Vince Neal's house. And Vince Neal is like Molly hey, Crew. Uh, you, he knows Molly listeners? Okay, Molly Crew. Vince Neal uh has pretty much just eaten himself into I don't know what the fuck he is. Like he is so out of shape. And I'm like, dude, how the fuck can these old rock stars get fat? I'm like, you guys have all this money. Like, is it the fact that you you did those copious amounts of cocaine and drugs and now you don't do the drugs anymore? I'm like, come on. You got to be like, oh, like, like, look at Mick Jagger. He's still in good shape. He what? Does he really? He's a CrossFitter.
2: No, they they'll probably claim that.
1: You know, Rolling Stones is the only band to never go to rehab. That's why they're still famous. Wow. Surprising. Yeah. Fucking crazy, huh? Are you making (laughs) that up? No, I'm telling you, the only band to never go to rehab.
2: It's quite the stat.
1: Dude, that that was their claim to fame. So I, I saw them in Philadelphia shit. This is like 15 years ago. And I remember thinking, how the fuck are these old men gonna get up there? And those dudes slayed it for like three wow. hours. It was incredible. I'm like, these dudes are like fuck and at this point they were in their late sixties. Now they're in their eighties and they're still killing it. Good for them. Yeah. That's what I call longevity. Mm-hmm. So uh That's all I got. That's all I got, dude. I got nothing else.
2: All right. Weston, where where can people go to to follow you and where can they find you? Idaho,
0: still racing around? Yeah, Idaho, smashing around, pissing off locals. Um, (laughs) But yeah, no, just anything on uh, social media, is everything is just my first and last name, Weston Pike. Um, Twitter, I think they deleted my account, so I have no Twitter anymore. Good job. I think Twitter's dead. Twitter's dead. It's just like I, I, I live in Twitter, I'm just like you just go on Twitter and write stupid shit to tell people that doesn't give a fuck about your life, like what you're doing every day in five seconds. Like that was Twitter for me. I hated Twitter, but I had to have it because of my contracts and stuff. But anything. Just anything, uh Weston Pike, uh Instagram, Facebook, that's pretty much the only things I'm I'm on. Cool. But. All right, well, guys, if you're uh looking to get a hold
1: of him, uh, he's easy to find. So well, dude, thanks for coming and on Power ethic Radio and sharing your story, dude. It was a pleasure to meet you and thanks for sharing.
0: Thank yeah, you. I think so, no. Good. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. You can find Weston on Instagram at Weston Peak. Until next time. Bye!